0: The silvery void of the astral sea stretches before you. The dark spot in the distance grows larger and comes into focus. The disembodied hand of a long-dead and forgotten god soon looms over you. The cave carved into the petrified flesh is intricate, no doubt formed by arcane means. It doesn't take long to reach an open chamber, with one raised platform at its center. Atop it lies a desiccated, severed head. you finally found the head of Vecna. I cut off my head and swap. That, it, it doesn't work like that. Did you steal this from Critical Role? Wait, no, that's the guy from Stranger Things. Wait, isn't Vecna a healthcare and robotics company? Alright, time for some Eldritch history. There are plenty of ways you could be familiar with Vecna, the Whispered One. Critical Role, The Legend of Vox Machina, Stranger Things, or you could have had the pleasure or misfortune of encountering him or his artifacts in a game of D&D. But there's some people out there who have never heard the name before, so for them I'll give a quick rundown before we get into the meat of the episode. So Vecna's been around pretty much since the beginning of the game. He started off as just artifacts, a hand and an eye, this long-dead lich, this undead magic user. And throughout the editions, he's grown in power and threat to where eventually he became a god- the god of magic, death, and secrets. And his influence has lingered through every edition of the game in some shape or form. And he's been known as one of the greatest villains that D&D has produced, enough so that he's expanded into things like Critical Role and Stranger Things. So Vecna is a pretty big deal in D&D. And to get to that, first we have to understand, where did Vecna come from? I think the best place to start on that front is the name, Vecna. It's actually an anagram of the name Vance, as in Jack Vance, a fantasy and sci-fi author that influenced the makers of D&D. For frame of reference, the early days of D&D were filled with all kinds of references for the people who made it, the people who influenced them, even their characters that they played while starting up these games. So what did Jack Vance do? How did he influence the game so much that he had two different artifacts named after him? I'll let Gary Gygax, one of the co-creators of D&D, answer the question of how much influence Jack Vance had on the early game. Quote, Just what portions of these works in the subsequent Advanced Dungeons & Dragons game stemmed from inspiration related to the writing of Jack Vance? Several elements. The unquestioned foremost being the magic system used in these games. To my way of thinking, the concept of a spell itself being magical that its written form carried energy seemed a perfect way to balance the mage against other types of characters in the game. The memorization of the spell required time and concentration, so as to impart not merely the written content, but also its magical energies. When subsequently cast, by speaking or some other means, the words or gestures or whatever triggered the magical force of the spell, leaving a blank space in the brain where the previously memorized spell had been held. Because I explain this often, attributing its inspiration to Jack Vance, the d and magic system of memorized, then-forgotten spells was dubbed by gamers the Vancean magic system. Okay, to, to simply put it, the Vancean system is a system by which spells are actually almost living things. They require energy to memorize. You have to put effort into, like, harnessing these spells within you and then you can release it using your verbal, somatic, or material components. It was classified as fire and forget. Basically, when you use the spell, it actually left your head and you could no longer use it. So you'd have to prepare each instance of each spell in order to use it. And it could take up to an hour per spell level in order to prepare those spells again. So it wasn't just take a long rest and then you're fine the next day. It could be days before a wizard was back up to full force if they had a very trying encounter before. And there were no at-will spells, no cantrips. If you ran out of the spells that you prepared, then you'd have to use a crossbow or something in order to fight. There's some remnants of this in D&D even today, but for the most part, they've gotten away from a truly Vancian system of magic. Now, this system is based on Vance's work on the Dying Earth series. It's a series like set so far in the future that the sun is dying out. The earth is on its last legs, basically, and magic has taken over. Here's a quote from Tales of the Dying Earth to kind of illustrate how Vance would describe his magic. Miserion made a selection from his books, and with great effort forced five spells upon his brain. Fandal's gyrator, Philogen's second hypnotic spell, the excellent prismatic spray, the charm of untiring nourishment... And the spell of the omnipotent sphere. I love these spell names, and they fit in with some of the the classic spells that we have. I mean, prismatic spray is still a spell, but it fits right in with. I, I could see Morden Kanan's magnificent mansion or Bigby's giant hand fitting right in with any of these from Jack Vance. So it's very clear that they were were inspired in the magic system just just from those names. But it wasn't just the magic system that Vance inspired them with. There's a bunch of different elements. The magic items, the Ion Stones, are straight up from Jack Vance. His short story, Morian, the eponymous wizard, had a variable cloud of stones that followed them about at all times. And the, uh, Gygax had gotten permission from Vance to use, because they were even called Ion Stones in the novels. Uh, in return, Vance named a character from Trulion Alastor, 2262. He named him Lord Gygax, which Gary was a bit upset about because he wasn't this cool space pirate. He had actually been, like, swindled out of money, and the only line about that character was that he wanted his money back. Uh, but other elements from the game, uh, The Thief is basically based off of Vance's Cudgel the Clever as well as Roger Zelazny's Shadow Jack. The Spell's Imprisonment, Everd's Black Tentacles, which came from the short story The Bagful of Dreams, The Robe of Eyes, these are all based off Vance's work. So it's very clear that early games, it was definitely one of the big influences of them. So Vecna first appeared in the supplement Eldritch Wizardry, which was written by Gary Gygax and Brian Bloom. It seems like Bloom was the one who made the artifacts, the hand and the eye of Vecna, which is how the character first appeared. Asked later, Gary Gygax said, Nary of detail of those items did Bloom ever reveal to me. So it seems like it was definitely him. Vecna was also referenced in a different artifact, the sword of Kass, which is, was his bodyguard's sword. And that's about all the information we have from that. It belonged to Vecna's bodyguard, his one-time bodyguard. And Kass, Kass, was actually named after Tim Kask, the editor of Eldritch Wizardry and other works from TSR. What's interesting is that the artifacts, the hand and the eye themselves, aren't really based off of Vance's work. They seem to be based off a different author, Michael Moorcock, in his book, The Knight of the Swords, which is about Coram. And in the book, Coram loses a hand and an eye, and he eventually gets them replaced uh, by artifacts known as the Hand of Quill and the Eye of Rin. And it said that the Eye of Rin allows Quorum to see into this undead netherworld. And the only things there are the last beings that he killed. And then using the hand, he's able to like pull them out and have them fight with him. The Hand and Eye of Vecna, as well as the Sword of Kas, just like every other artifact in Eldritch Wizardry, doesn't have a set of powers. The whole idea behind that book was to add in more mystery into the game of D&D. Basically, at that point, there was only a few pieces. So everybody who was playing knew everything. So it's like, oh, I know what this is. So you can't surprise me anymore. Unless the DM made up their own stuff, of course. But this whole supplement was to be like, hey, let's add some of the like, I don't know what this is. What do we do with this back into the game? So with that in mind, they had tables of like random powers that the artifacts could have. And each one is like, here's some suggested things that it could do, but just roll on this table or pick from this table and then you could write in, in the booklet They had room for like, write down what the powers are, because it's going to be different at every table, so that players can't just like game it and be like, oh, I know what this hand does. It's like, nope, you don't. <laughs> <laughs> That's not to say that they didn't have any description for any of these artifacts. Both the hand and the eye needed an empty slot in order to equip. So... You needed to be missing a left hand or an eyeball in order to attune to them. And all three would corrupt the user. The hand would try to make you evil, the eye would make you chaotic, and the sword of Cass would influence you and try to drive you evil as well. So original D&D and in first edition advanced Dungeons & Dragons, there's not much info on Vecna or Cass. Uh Basically, Vecna is described as uh, Lich, who is betrayed by Cass, his follower, and the only thing left of him is his hand and eye, and then Cass's sword remains too. That's about it. Not much more than that. It wasn't until second edition that we started actually getting a story for Vecna, and he, he'll play bigger, more prominent roles into the editions to come. But I think now it's best for me to just tell you the story of Vecna. Now, I'll give you a disclaimer that actually showed up in his first adventure. But this is going to be my version of events. Not that I made up anything, but this is the version that I like. And after that, I'll go into other versions that have been presented over the years. And this will make sense once I read this disclaimer. But after that, I'll just go into his history. So it was written in his first big work, Vecna Lives. It says this. He is a figure more of legend than fact. And like all legends there are embellishments, exaggerations, distortions, contradictions, and confusions attached to his name. The following information about Vecna is a collection of truth, contradiction, and misinformation. It's not meant to give a precise background of this mighty archlich. Instead, it represents the confusing picture the player characters are likely to gain if they research Vecna's history. Vecna, the Whispered One, the Archlich, Master of the Spider Throne, the Dying King, the Undying King, Lord of the Rotted Tower, the Chained God, the Maimed Lord, Lord of the Hand and the Eye, the Master of all that is secret and hidden, the One Named in Whispers, Master of Secrets. Whatever you wish to call Vecna, he's a near prehistoric figure in the world of Greyhawk, Orth. It said he was a very powerful mage who used his mastery of the arcane to create an empire, the occluded empire. This is, he, he's said to have ruled from the rotted tower on his spidered throne. Now, there's terrible stories of what he did to gain that power. It's said he created deserts. He would bury entire towns under rubble just to win a battle. He's even said to have sacrificed or even basically bred entire villages just to fuel a single spell. Even this, though, and his empire spread far and wide, but this wasn't enough. Uh, Once he saw his own death coming, once he was getting older and wearing away, he sought ways to extend his life. Instead, he was able to become a lich, the first lich, and the most powerful lich, through the help of a mysterious entity known as the serpent. Now, Vecna says that the serpent is an embodiment of magic itself. And so it was able to teach him the secrets of how to prolong his life. Uh, The story goes that he was able to confront his own death and imprison it in a castle on the gray sands of an alien world where it wails in eternal torment. A lot of his role as both a human and as a lich is pretty obscured. We're talking huge time frames, though, like centuries between things happen with Vecna. Since he's near prehistoric, he's got all the time in the world, basically, to have a wild backstory. The next major thing is about one of his followers, actually. So it's said that Vecna was almost destroyed by a bunch of clerics of Pelor. They were able to pool their power together and, like, blast him with this radiant energy that struck his left side and almost took him out. But he was saved by a demonic half-breed general who was named Aserorak. Ingratitude, rare for Vecna, but he allowed Aserak access to the rotted tower and he was able to gain a bunch of the Lich's secrets. Now it took a while, but eventually Vecna found out that Aserak had planned the whole thing. He had gotten together with the clerics and arranged for Vecna to almost be destroyed so that Aserak could gain the knowledge in order to become a Lich himself. Unfortunately, Vecna didn't find this out until after Acererak had already ran. He basically was able to foresee it. It was like, I'm out of here. And you are probably familiar with Acererak, even if you don't know it. If you've gone through the Tomb of Horrors or the Tomb of Annihilation, those are Acererak's workings. Or even if not, the cover of the 5th edition Dungeon Master's Guide, that's Acererak right there on the cover of that. Now it's said that this betrayal by Acererak is what really led Vecna to become so obsessed with secrets and realize how powerful they could be. But then the next big thing with Vecna is about his next follower, Cass, the bloody handed, the destroyer, the terrible. Now Cass was a human paladin of death who became obsessed with violence. He saw visions of blood, and he thirsted for worthy foes. So Vecna became intrigued by this by the passion, skill, and recklessness that Cass showed on the battlefield as he was serving him. And unlike a Serac, who is interested in magic, Vecna saw that Cass could be a reliable weapon because he only cared for blood, steel, and dominating his enemies in combat. So Vecna needed Cass because although he had imprisoned his death, his body was still rotting and decaying. He was becoming less and less interested in running an empire and all material stuff. He was more focused on learning more arcane secrets. So to signify this power, that Cass would become the right hand man of Vecna, the Lich offered him a powerful weapon, a sword that Vecna created himself. Now it's said that this sword was massive. It had a six-foot blade, a two-foot hilt. The blade was waved on its edge and that ripples of iridescent undulations would emit from it. There was a vein of gold that formed the center spine. The hilt was wrapped in red leather, flecked with gold. The guards were fashioned from polished pieces of unicorn horn. Its pommel is a leering, bearded face, designed so it forms a basket at the bottom of the hilt and its scabbard was made from the flesh of gibbeted doppelgangers. And being gibbeted means that you're hanged in a metal cage or chains. It's said that Vecna crafted the sword from the frozen heart of a fallen star, and he forged it in the heart of their son. And it's also said that Vecna added a little something extra to the sword as well. In case that wasn't enough, he wrapped a shadow of his own consciousness within the blade. And this was to make sure that he could keep tabs on Cass. So the idea was that the sword could relay anything it heard back to Vecna. It could even like listen in on Kaz's thoughts. Unfortunately, since it was a piece of Vecna, it was also greedy and power hungry and secretive. So it would feed Vecna false information, basically like, oh yeah, Cass is all good. He's totally loyal all while like corrupting Cass in order to make him betray Vecna. He's like, there can only be one Lord of Secrets. It's going to be me and you, Cass." There's a story that kind of sums up them and their relationship and the kind of things that they did for quote-unquote fun. So Vecna's army was attacking the city of Fleth. And before it could be destroyed, the lords of the town came out to beg Vecna for mercy. They said they would surrender everything as long as... Vecna spared their lives. But Vecna wasn't really interested in that. So Vecna wanted to kill everybody, basically. And the burgers were like, well, you can have us to spare the innocents in the town. Vector was like, hmm, maybe. All right, give me one of your families. So one of the most upright of them volunteered. And he was like, all right, we'll take the hit if it spares everybody else. So then Vecna gave that family over to Cass. And Cass just spent the whole day just executing them in front of the lords and the townspeople. So the other lords after that were like, okay, can we go now? We gave you what you wanted. Vecna was like, no. So then he had his armies attack the town for hours, just besieging it. Before finally, Vecna was like, all right, enough of this. He just waved his hands and the town walls just were destroyed. So then... He had his armies go in and, and kill everybody, present them in front of all the lords, especially their families were like right up front. And Vecna's was like, all right, now you can go. And he also made sure he protected them for the rest of their lives, basically. So that like, okay, you get to live with this knowledge in your head now, because I guess that's fun for an undead lord. So even with such diversions, Vecna grew more and more bored with the mortal world his empire is growing but he just doesn't really care anymore so he decides that he needs to ascend to godhood that's the next step for him he spends a long time figuring out how he can do it he finally gets everything ready he assembles all the spells and artifacts that he needs to do this and he starts the ritual it's at this point that the sword and cast are like okay time to strike so during this ritual he's harnessing all these arcane forces in order to make himself ascend into godhood Cass strikes out with the sword, and nobody witnessed this battle, or if they did, they didn't make it out alive, but it said that during this, this is when Vecna lost his hand and his eye, that Cass struck him out with the sword. The battle ended with a huge explosion, be this a last strike from Vecna or some result of the sword. It's unknown, but it said that for miles around, people were deafened with the force and the Noise from this explosion, and that. When people were finally able to go check out the tower, it was rubble, and the only things they found were Vecna's hand, his eye, and Cass's sword. The two figures were gone, though, but neither were forgotten. Legends spread about the sword, the hand, and the eye, and the artifacts existed too. So wherever they went, they s- spread chaos and destruction, It's said that Vecna's will was still roaming around as well, helping sow this and drawing power from it. It didn't matter if people sought out the hand or the eye in order to gain their power or if they wanted to help revive Vecna or just learn his secrets. All this belief in the artifacts led to belief in Vecna and his power. So he was able to amass more and more power over the centuries, millennia, until eventually he rose as a demigod. So he had kind of Accomplished what he set off to do. He'd gained some deity status, but it wasn't enough. He's like, okay, I might be a god or a godling, but no, I need to be number one. So he put a plan in motion in order to do that. So he spread out seven magical items, each place in a strategic secret place. The plan was that when they were fully powered, they would cast a mystical web over the entire planet, all of Orth, cutting off all the other gods from their worshippers. The only thing he needed were his hand and his eye. These were the key to fully unleashing all of this. He's able to retrieve his artifacts, but once again, his ascension ritual is stopped at the 11th hour, this time thanks to a group of adventurers as well as Ayus the Old, a demigod son of the witch Tasha, also known as Igwilf. And Tasha's famous for her cauldron of everything as well as her hideous laughter spell. She and the demon lord Grast gave birth to Ayuz, also an evil demigod, but who's opposed to Vecna taking control of everything? (laughs) Vecna and Ayuz fight and eventually tumble through a portal, and Vecna's not seen again for several years until he shows up in the Domains of Dread. At some point, Vecna takes control of a fortress known as Citadel Cavidius, It was originally built by the Doomguard, one of the factions of Sigil. And they believe that the decay and entropy of everything was not only inevitable, but a good thing and was supposed to happen. So with that frame of mind, they built this citadel, Cavidius, and it looked like a giant skull. It was like hollowed out and the city was within it. And it's located on the quasi-elemental plane of ash. So basically it's where the elemental plane of fire and the plane of negative energy at the meeting of those two planes, this is where it stood. And the Plane of Ash sucks the heat from creatures and magic. After portraying his master, Cass is sent off to Citadel Cavidius, and it's said he's left there to rot for centuries. And the magical nature of the Plane of Ash, the one that sucks the heat from you, basically sucked out his soul, and he's left as a vampire. So after Vecna is pushed through a portal trying to ascend to greater godhood, the powers of Ravenloft... These ineffable forces that rule over these mist and terror filled lands where they take the worst entities in the universe and make them rulers of their own domain of dread, but also make it so that they're imprisoned there and can never escape. Essentially snatch him up. They grab him, as well as cast, and they drop them into the demiplanes of dread. And they get their own conjoined domain known as the Burning Peaks. Fecna rules over Cavidius, which is drawn from his citadel in the Plain of Ash. And like that, it's surrounded by this desert that just saps the life out of anybody who steps foot in it. He's got this giant skull-shaped city, which is filled with undead. And it's said that no magic can be cast in this place except for Fecna's tower. He basically doesn't want anybody getting powerful enough to usurp his throne. And this whole time, this... Domain is at war with cass's domain on the other side of the burning peaks this giant mountain range that neither can cross because it's technically no longer their domain Cass's domain is called Tovag and it's a military dictatorship with Cass at the rule he has a militia called the daggers all his people are used as fodder for the war effort Rations are given out to make sure that the troops can be fed every able-bodied man and women are drafted into the military. And the people here age twice as fast. So nine-year-olds are entering in the military because they have the bodies of 18-year-old people. So everything is just driven towards getting more and more people, more recruits, in order to fight the war with Vecna. Cass doesn't even allow his people to read or write or gain pretty much any knowledge except what is isn't necessary to wage war. Now, Vecna, as always, has plans. He's attempting to escape this domain of dread, something no one has ever done, by using knowledge that the serpent has given him. They have a plan to get Vecna reborn within Cass's domain of Tobag. From there, he can lay siege to his old enemy. As well as, since he's no longer in his domain of Cavidius, he should be free of the dark powers. To facilitate this plan, Vecna has a secret cult within Tovag that's headed up by Volkar the Obedient. He's an old man with a long beard, and he's planning on using the unborn child of his niece in order to give new life to his master. Luckily, a group of adventurers once again are able to foil his plans, but it doesn't stop Vecna for long. Eventually, an older plan of his comes to fruition. As part of his plans for attaining greater godhood, Vecna had buried two tablets at an ancient archaeological site. And on these, he wrote a spell in the language primeval, which he had learned from the serpent. Now, this language was incredibly powerful and dangerous, so much so you had to be a high-level spellcaster to even attempt to read it, let alone understand the machinations behind this spell. So eventually, these tablets fell into the hands of Ayuz the demigod who had helped wart Vecna's previous attempt at ascension. Now, part of the spell was that Ayuz needed a portion of a different demigod in order to absorb their power and ascend to greater godhood. He happened to choose the hand of Vecna. So while Vecna was trapped in Ravenloft, Ayuz puts this plan into motion. But when the moment comes, it's revealed that Vecna lied. On these tablets, it was actually the person who started casting the spell that would be sacrificed to the other demi power. So when Ayus tried to absorb Vecna's power, Vecna absorbed all of Ayus's and became a greater god. He used this newfound power to twist the domains of dread in order to deposit himself at the city of Sigil. Now, no one had escaped Ravenloft on their own power before, n- none of the, the Dark Lords anyway. But before Vecna, they had never tried to house a demigod, let alone a greater god, so they didn't really stand a chance. Also worth noting that when he invaded Sigil, Sigil specifically is set up to keep gods out. The Lady of Pain is said to be a member of the ancient brethren, just like the serpent, a group of beings older and more mysterious than the gods even. She had previously said that no gods would enter, as Sigil was kind of a hub for the multiverse. You could get to any other higher planes of existence through it and potentially rewrite reality as you saw fit, which is why Vecna wanted to go there, even though it was inhospitable for gods. So Vecna's plan was to get in and rewrite reality as he saw fit to make himself the only god there was. Once again, luckily, a group of adventurers stopped this and was able to defeat Vecna, And with their help, the Lady of Pain was able to kick Vecna out. And then she rewrote reality to make sure that nobody could attempt this, like, little loophole that Vecna had found to get in there again. But some of the damage was already done. After this, Vecna, more often than not, is depicted as a god within the multiverse. So he retained some of his powers even after this whole thing went down. And Ayus eventually was released as well. And that's basically where Vecna sits to this day. He's a deity who's always seeking to attain more power and become the one true god. Now I'd like to go over some of the reasons why uh, Vecna's history is confusing and convoluted to get through. See what other people have done with him. See different additions and items and locations and people associated with Vecna. Try to give you some ideas of how you could use him in your game. So we'll start with an alternate version of Vecna's origins. Some people say that he was from the city of Fleth that city that he and Cass had so brutally executed. Uh, Some say he was from there, and he and his mother were part of the untouchable class. And his mom was a witch who was the first person to teach him magic and also evil. She was apparently quite an awful person. And for that, she was eventually burned by the people of Fleeth for her evil and crimes. Now, it's said that her death is what spurned him on to extend his own life. There's also a few different ways that people say he was able to come about this. Uh, instead of imprisoning his own death... Some say that Vecna's pride and arrogance offended the greater powers of the Outer planes so much that they cursed him to forever dwell on the border between life and death, never to fully live nor rest in tranquil death. Some say he was the son of he who was, this ancient deity who's basically like the Abrahamic god, and is also the deity who Asmodeus is said to have betrayed when he fell. Uh, they say that Vecna is actually the son of this deity, this he who was, and he was entrusted with the hope of all mankind, which is why he went on to do such great things. I'm not a big fan of these uh, big origin stories for villains made after the fact. I don't like, some some people it makes sense, but for the most part, especially with somebody who's like the embodiment of evil and secrets, trying to like, oh, this is what really is. It's like, Really? <laughs> His whole shtick is like you can't tell what's real or what's not. So for you to come up, oh he was a kid and it's all about mommy issues is kinda like that seems disingenuous to me. As far as who taught him like how to become a Lich and how to do all the terrible but amazing things that he's done, uh, I described the serpent, which is the version I liked and it's what is from some of his earliest stories it's described as a serpent but other people have since then gone and, and like questioned who the serpent actually was some agree with vecna that it's an embodiment of magical power it's this uber deity of the ancient brethren such as the lady of pain asmodeus and desirion who is a quad deity they say these are all incredibly old entities in the world kind of off to the side of deities but they're incredibly powerful. Some say they're even older than the gods themselves. Some people actually say that the serpent is a persona of Asmodeus. Some say it's Orcus, it's like evil entity who is portraying something else. I like Asmodeus. I'm not sure 5th edition's version is that Orcus is who taught Vecna, which fits with the whole undeath thing and becoming a lich, but I like the serpent thing and Asmodeus being, you know, a devil analog kind of fits that better. In my mind. And then there's some people who say that the serpent is actually just Vecna, like an insane manifestation of his obsessive ambition. It's also said that Vecna's cult brutally murders anybody who's saying that. So be careful. <laughs> of course, Vecna drew a bunch of followers throughout his centuries of existence. We've touched on a few. Aserarach, Cass. It's unknown what happened to Cass after the time in Ravenloft. It's kind of left open-ended if he's still there. Other people say that he's become a vestige of power and that there's a prophecy that says that he'll return once again to strike down Vecna, which is kind of cool. (laughs) Uh, There's a few more. In Die Vecna Die, it's detailed that there's this half-fiend named Eli Cromlich, which I feel like the name's a bit. Lich, really? For a servant of a lich? Okay, but uh, it said that he was a Doomguard and he controlled Sigil's armory, and that he was part of a task force that was sent to recover treasure. From Cavideus, which had used to be a Doom Guard, this faction in Sigil. They used to own it. At one point Vecna was said to be inactive, so the Doom Guard was like, okay, let's go get some of our stuff that's still there from when he took over. So Cromlich was the only person to come back from that mission. And eventually people come to say that, well, probably what's happened is that he encountered Vecna and he either sold his soul or he was destroyed and Vecna like put something back in his place. It turns out that Cromlich would spend years secretly studying magic and use powerful demons to lay chaotic symbols within the armory. And these were both to sow destruction and chaos and also to help weaken it for Vecna's eventual attack and invasion of Sigil. And it said that it worked. When he went there, Cromlich's actions, like, he eventually got killed, but it did help Vecna in order to invade. Uh, for his part, Vecna brought Cromlich back to life. Because he was like, well, job well done. And uh, so Cromlich, being a half-fiend, already had jet black skin, short white hair, and really sharp pointed ears. But then after that, he also has these terrible scars. Because it turned out that he was actually killed by a sphere of annihilation. So he has all these scars on his right side. And Vecna replaced his lost arm and leg with these golden prosthetics. And then while he was at it, he also replaced his left arm and left eye it sounds like they weren't like lost with the sphere of annihilation but vecna just like took them anyway and replaced them with these golden versions in order to be like yeah everybody knows you serve me and after everything that went down in sigil uh vecna kind of just like ditched him he does have on place over him like a shield of non-detection but otherwise he just kind of like forgot about him so now It's said that Kromlitz just wanders the plains, like hiding out from all the people that he pissed off, both his fellow Doomguards, all the agents of the other gods who Vecna was trying to screw over. They seek him out. And then Vecna's own people also seek him out because it's said that he knows how Vecna did what he did, at least in part. Some people just want to figure out what he knows and other peoples are still loyal to Vecna and they're like, we need to kill him before he tells anybody else what he knows. Being a god of undeath, Vecna also made plenty of his own undead, as well as his followers did, too. Uh, but there's this one that I really like. It stands out to me as being just this weird, unique entity to encounter. His name is Gustin the Blood Fiend, who is like he's a fiendish ghast, and he's completely unique. And he's got pale, translucent skin. That shows off all his musculature and the blood vessels running underneath it. And it's said that his features are really smooth as if his bones have all been worn away and they lack any hard angles except for where his teeth and his claws. His head is kind of sloped like a cat and then the limbs have ape-like proportions so his arms are really long and his legs are really short. He's hairless except he's got this really wild unkept mane on his head and neck and he's said to be really cunning and stealthy and he hates all living things. And he's the ability to cannibalize corpses and drink blood in order to gain health but when he does so it causes all of his translucent skin to blush blood red and he is said to take living creatures as payment because he likes to kill and eat them. And he's really fearful of clerics and their ability to turn turn undead and so he also covets items that can make him stronger and especially ones that can help him resist turning attempts this guy just seems so unique to me and bizarre it seems like a cool if you're going up against vecna seems like a cool guy to grab there's also a couple of beings who are said to be vecna's exarchs And in D&D terms, an exarch is just this really powerful being, like a chosen, a demigod, a saint, an archangel, or another being of really high power that they just pledge their services to a specific deity. And uh, there's two that are associated with Vecna. Uh, The first is Falazur, the night demon. This is said to be an aspect of Null, who is a dragon god of undeath and death. Uh, His followers claim that he's the brother of Bahamut and Tiamat. So they say he's on that level. While other people question whether or not he's actually a god at all. Some say he's just a very powerful dragon. So Falazar is known for his vampire-like breath of life-draining miasma. He appears as this gaunt black dragon, sometimes so emaciated he seems more akin to a dracolich. And that as a devotee of Vecna... He teaches that a multitude of secrets can extend a dragon's long life even longer. These include necromancy and vampiric regeneration, but not all of them do. And Valazar also knows other hidden dragon secrets. So dragons pray to him to learn what whatever he'll divulge to them. Then the other exarch is somebody we've met before. Volkar the Obedient, the leader of the cult in Tovag, casts Domain of Dread. Only now he's late, he's later re-encountered as Vokar the Disobedient and uh, he's even more weathered old and his robes are all ragged now and he's got a empty eye socket and a stump of his left arm and he's stuck in the sigil and he kind of fends off attempts on his life both by Vecna's people and other people who he angered in service of Vecna. But he kind of just lives in Sigil and spews out these terrible secrets and stuff that most people are like, I hope that's not true and that you're just an old crazy man because there's some crazy nonsense that you're spewing out here. I've mentioned a few times, but of course, being a god, Vecna has organized followers, his cult. And this seems to have started as early as his destruction by Cass as soon as that happened the rumors started to spread about the power of these beings and the artifacts from there this cult started to spread and they've been around ever since basically the cult they seek out secrets because they feel like they grant power over others so they're able to exploit or destroy anyone or anything with the right secret their symbol and vecna's symbol is the left hand and eye usually the eye is like in the palm of the hand When they're in a rush, the cult might just draw a circle with a fan spray of lines or a handprint over a circle. The cult is secretive, of course. They like codes and symbols to spread messages. Some join the cult to gain the secret of lichdom, as Vecna did but many of them are coerced into joining at first dark secrets are exploited and often the cult cell is a web of interconnecting secrets somebody will blackmail somebody else to get in and then that new person will learn a secret about the original blackmailer this all leads to this cohesiveness almost because they don't want anybody else even being killed because a dead person could be like speak with dead oh now i learn all your secrets and what do they care they're dead so they actually kind of look out for each other to try to ensure that their secrets won't get out But also, some of the more crafty followers isolate themselves and they create a small subcult, which they make sure that none of their secrets are gotten out. So their whole group of cultists only obey them. Vecna's cult is actually said to be pretty well off, actually, rich even due to blackmail and extortion. Being fairly common practices for them. A specific example of this is they're known to take over vacant or dying churches. They'll outwardly worship the original deity of that church, and they'll use its faith and its congregation to gain trust and info and exploit a community. Some of the cultists take into wearing a black glove on their left hand to symbolize Vecna. Others go so far as to cut off their hand and pluck out an eye. This is generally discouraged as it's too obvious Uh, The cult has a few practices. Uh, One of them is called the Mockery of the Betrayer. Basically, this is a celebration of Kaz's betrayal. And it signifies that all serve Vecna, as even Kaz's betrayal led to Vecna's ascension. During this mockery, they sacrifice a sentient creature to represent Kaz. And if there's an actual traitor to the cult, uh, they love that. And uh, that person is unimaginably tormented. Another one is called The Challenge of the Secrets. Basically, this is a method of relieving tensions between a couple of cultists. They're gathered together and forced by their superior to reveal secrets. And the assembled congregation of judges are there to determine whose secrets are more worthwhile to the cult. And it's pretty common for secrets about the judges themselves or the implication that they might reveal it. Uh, these lead to sometimes very quick judgments for one person if they can basically trick their judges into like oh better vote for him before he tells everybody that about me there's another ritual and it's called the making this is where they create these constructs called the hand and the eye not to be confused with the artifacts there are certain planar and celestial conjunctions that have to be about to, for this to happen and vecna himself has to intervene but we'll discuss the hand and the eye later because they're really wild and cool There are plenty of myths that surround Vecna, in part due to his own intervention and his cult. Uh, But the cult likes telling these stories, and they sometimes use identifying false ones to test their junior cultists. Some they like to tell are the betrayal, of course. They use it to serve as a warning to cultists to mind where they put their faith and trust, as even Vecna was able to be betrayed. They have another one called The Tamed God, and in this story, it tells how Vecna exploited a godling. It said that he learned a secret of its origin, or of its rise to power. The secret and the deity themselves are unknown, but the cult says that Vecna leveraged this to lay the groundwork of his own ascension. They say it serves as a lesson that even the mightiest being can be laid low by their secrets. And the third story is called The Whisper of Fear. So Vecna was absent from the material plane for centuries after Cass struck him down. Only his hand and eye remained. And yet, even so, mortals and deities even feared him and spoke his name in whispers, hence the whispered one. The cult says this serves as a lesson that the hint of a thing can have power, and what someone believes you know can be more damaging than what you actually do. The cult also has a few aphorisms or sayings that I like. One is, secrets never die, which they use as both a promise and a warning. So they might say it to each other. It's just kind of a greeting or something. But they'll also use it in their blackmail, telling their victims that, hey, you can't get rid of us ever. And then another thing is the sacred chant. This is what they say during rituals or meetings. It's a chant that they'll say over and over. It goes like this. Vecna guide us. We whisper your name, we seek the knowledge, we find the secrets. For power, for earth, for your will, for your rule. In the name of the hand and the eye, we open our minds to you. The main cult also has a hierarchy. So at the very top, of course, is Vecna. But right below him is the voice of Vecna. And this is actually Vecna's manifestation on the physical plane. Uh, This person is usually maimed in some way, like Vecna. Uh, I I think it's funny that (laughs) even the top of the cult, he trusts only to be himself. Uh, Right below Vecna, essentially, is the heart of Vecna. Her most enigmatic excellency, sublime mistress of the whispered one. She serves as the high priestess of the cult. She transmits the commandments of Vecna to his faithful. And right below her are the hand and the eye. Those two constructs I hinted at earlier. These beings are constructed from the disembodied hands or eyes of the victims of the cult said hundreds of them can be used in each the eye is usually tall and lanky and has a giant eyeball as a head he usually wears robes covered in eyes he's said to be incredibly dexterous and fast and he'll fight with daggers but then even just looking at somebody with that giant eye can like drain their strength from them the hand on the other hand (laughs) uh is usually short and stocky more like a dwarf But his head is a giant hand, fittingly enough. And he'll fight with two swords. But he can also just grab people with that giant hand and like crush the life out of them with that actually draining energy from them. These two are our lieutenants of the heart of Vecna. So they listen only to her unless the voice of Vecna, Vecna's manifestation, is there. Then they'll listen to him too. Below them are the thoughts of Vecna. These are leaders of the congregations, which are called the Organs you'll notice a theme here with Vecna uh basically they're the the high priests right below the high priestess they'll lead everybody else in various cult groups and cities and stuff below them are the lesser priests the memories of Vecna now there's only one thought per region or cult sect but there can be plenty of memories underneath them under them are the lay people of the court these include the teeth which are the mages and specialist wizards They're called the teeth because it's said that their fearsome bite is the spells that they gain from Vecna. Now, these can be more powerful than some of the higher ups, but they're usually only down here due to how committed they are to Vecna. So these could be really powerful people who the cult requires to make them items or magic, but they're not quite fully dedicated to Vecna. Alongside them are the fingers of Vecna. These are thieves. They're noted for dyeing their fingers red on missions in order to send a message that hey we serve Vecna. Similarly, there's the blood of Vecna, or fighters, and they'll smear red dye over their faces for similar reasons. Then at the bottom are the spawn of Vecna. These are just the common folk, but they're highly protected as their belief is what grants Vecna his power, basically. He needs these people, so striking them down is a very big no-no in the cult. and They're to be protected. There's also some other groups that worship Vecna, cut off a bit from the main cult. The votaries of Vecna are hidden sects within the Shadowfell. They perform unspeakable experiments to devise new types of undead. And then most interesting to me is the Keepers of the Forbidden Lore. This tiny sect is as ancient as anything associated with Vecna. It's said that he, the Vecna himself tasked them with gathering dangerous lore and revealing it only to Vecna. Now, they're they're really noteworthy, both for what they do and also for not being evil they they really focus on vecna being the god of secrets here and they're like there are some secrets too dangerous to be left out. They don't take sides in good versus evil. They just hold on to this dangerous stuff until Vecna can come back. They have rituals that could spill the madness of the far realm into the material plane, unleash hordes of the abyss to lay waste to creation, things that could return the rule to power or release the chained god from his abyssal prison. They also oppose the worshipers of Ioun, who is a god as well as maker of the stones that bear her name and ayun seeks to make all knowledge available to people which is completely against the keepers of the forbidden lore And uh, the keepers are known to raid Ioun's temples in order to steal dangerous magics or kill the people who would unleash them. could be a cool mission. they like, somebody's raiding this temple of Ioun, this good goddess of magic. It turns out it's these worshippers of Vecna, which sounds like they'd be the bad guys, but potentially they could be saving the world from this real terrible thing that the worshipper of Ioun is willingly or unwillingly about to unleash. I also think it's funny that Ioun, the goddess, directly based off of Jack Vance's work, as opposed to Vecna, who is named for Jack Vance, how that worked out. I think that's amusing. There's so many items associated with Vecna as well, which is fitting considering his original existence in the game was based off of items. And of the sword, it's also said that there's a couple of hypothesized ways to destroy the sword of Kos, that it must be cast over the waterfall of the moon to shatter on the rocks below, that it can only be destroyed when Vecna himself is slain. Some say that it must be hammered into a plowshare by the cudgel of Saint Cuthbert. Others say that the memory of Cass must be wiped from the minds of Orth, and then the sword will simply cease to exist. Similarly, there's been hypothesized methods of destroying the hand and the eye. It said that the eye can only be destroyed in the heart of the sea of dust, where it must be roasted in the scorching flames of the oldest red dragon in all of Orth. The hand might be destroyed by carrying it off to the heart of the positive energy plane by one who has never experienced fear, and there it must be crushed by hand into powder. So said that both can be destroyed if they are shattered on the golden forge at the heart of the sun. The eye can be destroyed by encasing it in volcanic glass from the hell furnaces and then shattering it against the crystals sphere that encloses gray space the hang must be willingly affixed to the purest or most vile corrupt person in all of gray hawk said if it's attached to the most corrupt person they'll profit from it greatly but after a time they'll drain all of its power out of it and currently in fifth edition it's said that the hand and the eye can only be destroyed if they're attached to the same person and that person is killed by the sword of Kos. aside from the big three the next most important item associated with vecna is the Book of Vile Darkness. Now, this has been around since first edition, at least. Uh, but for, for first and second, it doesn't mention Vecna at all. But this is a book of pure evil with all kinds of terrible spells and things. Think of it, it's like a Necronomicon, basically. It's usually bound in flesh and bone. But eventually the legends say that Vecna, if he didn't write it himself, he at least contributed a big portion of it right now, a bunch of his evil knowledge. But there's other books associated with him as well. It said that he wrote... Ordinary Necromancy, a spell book that included spells such as Animate Dead, The Death Spell, Reincarnation and Clone, Vecna's Ineffable Variorum, which included Depth Perception, which is funny for the one-eyed god, Vecna's Conflagration, Turn Lightning, and Vecna's ultimate abjuration. This one said to never been completed, but it was supposed to be like this ultimate protection spell for Liches where they could essentially not be harmed anymore. It's also said that his cult has a copy of the Book of Keeping. these are written by the Ugalos, these neutral fiendish creatures, and it's books of the true names of demons and devils. Most of the copies of the Books of Keeping have intentional errors, where if somebody is trying to gain power over a demon or a devil, they'll misspeak something and then the, they'll be able to be killed. But the Cult of Vecna is said to keep one that has notes, addendums, and corrections for all those mistakes. So they have one that's accurate. There's also the Book of Kings, which is said to have info on any ruler living or dead all you have to do is think of them magica malefica which includes instructions on how to become a lich be you a wizard cleric or bard fact, is also supposed to have the books of the brethren 21 tomes of all kinds of magic including a spell called living pages which was used to make these books or basically it turns the pages into a flesh-like thing that's warm to the touch and more durable than paper but sounds absolutely gross The Tome of Shared Secrets is another book in Vecna's collection. It's a bestiary, and you slice your hand open and place it on an entry in there, and it drains your constitution, but in exchange you gain knowledge and power against the creature that that entry is about. If your constitution is ever reduced to zero by doing this, you die, and then Vecna gets your soul, and your body becomes a mindless zombie. Then also randomly, Cass gets a a spellbook. The Legendary of Great Arms and Fabulous Heroes. It has spells, they grant armor, like stone skin, or protection from missiles or shields. It seems like, yeah, he's associated with Vecna, but he, he was never really magical, so it seems weird that he got a spell book. Continuing with the weird body part theme of Vecna and his cult, there are other artifacts called the fragments of Vecna. Things like his right fingers, his teeth, a foot, his heart, and sometimes his head. And they're all said to um, grant various powers. The story of the head is pretty funny. It was first recorded in the Daily Illuminator news column on the Steve Jackson Games website in 1996. The story was submitted by a DM named Mark Stewart. It goes like this. Many years ago, back when we were all still playing D&D, I ran a game where I pitted two groups against each other. Several members of Group 1 came up with the idea of luring Group 2 into a trap. You remember the Hand of Vecna and the Eye of Vecna that were artifacts in the old D&D world, where if you cut off your hand or your eye and replace it with the Hand of Vecna, or the eye, you get new, awesome powers? Well, Group 1 thought up the head of Vecna. Group 1 spread rumors all over the countryside, even paying bards to spread the word about this artifact rumored to exist nearby. They even went so far as to get a real head and place it under some weak traps to help with the illusion. Unfortunately, they forgot to let all the members of their group in on the secret plan. I suspect it was because they didn't want the druid to get caught and tell the enemy about this trap of theirs, or maybe because they didn't want him messing with things. The druid in Group 1 heard about this New artifact and went off in search of it himself. I believe to help prove himself to the party members. Well, after much trial and tribulation, he found it, deactivated or set off all the traps, and took his prize off into the woods for examination. He discovered that it did not radiate magic, a well-known trait of artifacts, and smiled gleefully. I wasn't really worried since he was alone, and I knew that there was no way he could cut his own head off. Alas, I was mistaken, as the druid promptly summoned some carnivorous apes and instructed them to use his own scimitar and cut his head off, and of course quickly replacing it with the head of Vecna. Sometime later, Group 1 decided to find the druid and to check on the trap. They found the headless body and the two heads, and realized that they had erred in their plans. Beside laughing at the character who had played the druid, the head of Vecna still had both eyes. They corrected this mistake, and reset their traps and the head for its real intended victims. Group 2, by this time, had heard of the powerful artifact and decided that it bore investigating, since if true, they could use it to destroy Group 1. After much trial and tribulation, they found the resting place of the head of Vecna. They were particularly impressed with the cunning traps surrounding the site. One almost missed his save against the weakest poison known to man. They recovered the head and made off to a safe area. Group 2 actually came to blows. Several rounds of fighting against each other, arguing over who would get their head cut off. Several greedy players had to be hurt and restrained before it was decided who would be the recipient of the great powers bestowed by the head. The magician was selected, and one of them promptly cut his head off. As the player was lifting the head of Vecna to emplace it on its new body, another argument broke out and they spent several minutes shouting and yelling. Then finally they put the head onto the character. Well, of course, the head simply fell off the lifeless body. All members of Group 2 began yelling and screaming at each other, and at me, and then, on their own, decided that they had let too much time pass between cutting off the head of a hopeful recipient and put the head of Vecna onto the body. So they did it again, killing another PC. In closing, it should be said that I never even cracked a smile as all this was going on. After the second PC was slaughtered, I had to give in... My side was hurting. And group two blamed me for all of that. So let that be a warning to you. Don't let your head get cut off unless you really know what you're doing. Other magic items associated with Vecna include the rod of the Whispered One. It's a rod of bone and metal that looks like a skeletal hand clutching a sphere of swirled iron and gold. It acted as a rod of rulership and a crystal ball mixed into one. And when somebody used it to scry, Vecna and all of his clerics within 10 miles know and can scry upon the user automatically automatically. There's also the crown of Burgess, which granted non-detection, and it was hidden even from Vecna. It said that King Walnarek IV of Burgess laid a curse on Vecna for his hand in the destruction of his lands. So that's why this item could not be detected even by Vecna. Vecna was said to have had a dagger named Afterthought. It was incredibly powerful, especially against incorporeal and good enemies, and those who like to keep their blood inside their body. It's also an artifact known as the Silver Mask of Cass, which is associated with a alternate version of how Cass became a vampire, so that as he served Vecna, he became older and older, and Vecna at first would use his magic in order to sustain his youth and life. But eventually Cass's body withered to a point where Vecna could no longer keep it alive. So he crafted a silver mask with these large fangs on it and he placed it on Cass and imbued it with negative energy and Cass became a vampire that way. It said this silver mask is still out there and can turn other people who wear it into vampires. Fecna served as a major influence in campaign one of critical role having taught Delilah Briarwood some forbidden magic and helping to raise Silas Briarwood up as a vampire. And then Vecna himself served as the big bad at the end of the campaign. Urvach Machina had to take him down as he once again tried one of his ascension plots. At the end of that battle, they were betrayed by Arcan the Cruel, a paladin of Tiamat and he took the hand of Vecna and went off to the Nine Hells Avernus specifically to try to release Tiamat from her imprisonment there The Eye has most recently been rumored to be in possession of a Miracle the Chaotic Now this guy is interesting because he first showed up as just a piece of art in the first edition Dungeon Master's Guide a piece of art by Dave Trampier and it's just this guy riding through town on a horse and he's just blasting people with magic No real explanation given, uh, but he's been used a few times uh, by a whole bunch of people just inspired by this image that's just so wild. In an *Adventures League adventure called Hellfire Requiem, it's said that he is currently in possession of the Eye of Vecna. In the real world, Vecna's been showing up a lot recently. He was part of the Magic the Gathering Adventures in the Forgotten Realm set. There was a card for the Hand of Vecna, for the Eye of Vecna, for the Book of Vile Darkness, and then you could also, if you had all of them, have Vecna himself show up. He also got a Funko Pop exclusive the GameStop. Where his kids put out a statue of the eye in the hand that you can get and they're also working on a statue of Vecna himself in this new design. This gilded design that was also on the Funko Pop. So I think Wizards has plans for Vecna coming up pretty soon. And he's also in the newest season of Stranger Things. He seems to be the big bad for season four, Uh, but it hasn't come out yet as a recording. So I plan on covering Stranger Things and Vecna's involvement there at a later date. So there we have the embellished, exaggerated, distorted, contradictory, and confusing tale of Vecna, the Whispered One. Thank you very much for listening. I hope you were inspired to use Vecna in your own game, or at the very least, were entertained. I'm Jacob tomlinson corst and until next time, may you always make your saving throw, especially against evil gods and their secrets.